Well, hey everybody, it's great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. Honored to have you along for the ride, and I am super excited today, which I always am. But today, in particular, super excited because we get to launch a brand new three-part series called Detours that's all about a question that, if we're honest, I'm pretty sure we've all asked at least once in our lives. In fact, if you've only asked this question once, you are way ahead of the curve. The question goes like this. What can you do when life doesn't go as planned? Like, what can you do when your life takes an unexpected and often unappreciated detour, right? And it can happen in your job. It can happen in one of your key relationships. It can happen with regards to your health. It can happen, you know, in your educational journey. I mean, this time of the year, we've got high school seniors all over this place that are applying to college. And just imagine with me that for one of these students, the day will come when they get notification that informs them that they didn't get into the school they had always dreamed of attending, right? Some of us have had that experience. And I'm telling you, it leaves you kind of stunned, especially if you have the grades and the scores and, and you know, everyone tells you you're really well-rounded, whatever that means, right? Yeah, so like these, these, these rejections just seem inconceivable, but nonetheless, they happen. And when they do in that moment for the person for whom it happens, their plans for their future are dramatically interrupted. And though they might not think about it in these terms, their life just took a detour, or, or maybe, um, maybe this has been your experience, but you woke up one morning to find a note on your kitchen counter that informed you that your marriage was over. And um, if you're being honest, you know, your relationship had been eroding for a long time, but you'd always held out hope that it was recoverable and like the, you know, you'd sought the counsel of wise friends and you'd sat with marriage counselors and you'd really tried to do all the things that you're supposed to do. But, but in spite of your best efforts, things kept sliding in the wrong direction. And so it didn't really even surprise you when you found the note, but with the note, your plans for your future, your dreams and your hopes, they, they were disrupted. They were interrupted. And though you may not have thought about it in these terms, your life just took a detour. Or maybe one more example, maybe for you it was the day you received a phone call from your doctor's office relaying some unnerving results from some routine blood work. And in what would have been a, you know, and it was a profoundly disorienting moment, you found all of your hopes and your dreams for your future had become obscured behind clouds of fear and uncertainty. And though you may not have thought about in these terms, your life just took a detour. I'm telling you, this life, the life that we live, the life that we love, the life through which we struggle at times, it's full of detours. In fact, some of you are in a detour right now. And others of us have been through one recently, and still others of us, even though we don't know, realize that the next detour is right around the corner. And that, that's why I wanted to take a few weeks to talk about what you can do when life doesn't go as planned. And, and so to that end, what I want for us to do is to explore one of the first stories recorded in the Bible. It's an ancient, ancient story of the life of a man by the name of Joseph. And if you know his story, you already know. Joseph's life took a very, very significant detour. And the reason I want to do this is I want to explore how God met Joseph on his detour as a way to sort of help us to consider how he might desire to meet us on ours. Uh, and just before we jump into the story, a bit of housekeeping. This Joseph 
wasn't Jesus' dad, because some of you were already wondering, right? Like he wasn't the guy who was married to Mary, and that's even hard to say. But anyway, you know what I'm saying? This Joseph lived hundreds of years earlier. In fact, this Joseph was part of a very special family that God had chosen for a very special purpose. A few generations before Joseph's time, God had rather unexpectedly made contact with a man named Abraham. And he had promised Abraham that one day his ancestors would become a nation through which God was going to bless the whole world. And that promise was then passed to Abraham's son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob, who was later renamed Israel, and then on to Joseph and his 11 brothers. And just a footnote for the Bible nerds among us, the 12 sons of the family of a man named Israel eventually became the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Okay, so now with that background, let's jump into the account of Joseph's life. It was recorded in the first book in the Bible, a document we call Genesis. And the author of Genesis introduces us to Joseph this way. He wrote that Joseph... A young man of 17 was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. So like not wife, but wives. And just notice the author wants us to know that Joseph's dad had a few wives, which let's be honest, would have made Joseph's family dynamics a bit complicated, as you can imagine. In fact, the whole multiple wives thing actually brings me to the first point of application that I think we can draw from Joseph's life, and and it goes like this. Um, If you have more than one wife, things don't go well in your life. You should write that down. Take a picture with your phone. Totally worth the price of admission. Good stuff. Anyway. Back to the story, author of Genesis recorded that one day after tending to the family's flocks with his brothers, he says, Joseph brought their father a bad report about them. In other words, Joseph ran in from the field where he was with his brothers and gave his father a troubling account of the activity of his brothers, presumably, because this is all the context we have, regarding their activities with the sheep. And just full disclosure, I spent some significant time this week researching what exactly Joseph's brothers might have been doing with the sheep to merit a bad report. And the only suggestion that ChatGPT came up with was sheep racing. Okay, but... That seems a bit unlikely in the ancient world. Anyway, regardless of the specifics of his brother's offense, Joseph came in from the field, found his father, and said something like, Dad, they just don't do things like we do things. And then as the account continued, the author of Genesis provides us with a really interesting detail. He wrote that Israel, that's the dad, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. So now, if you're paying attention, it's easy to recognize that Joseph's father showed a spectacular lack of good judgment here. I mean, if you think about it, the problem isn't that Joseph got a robe. That's great. It's that his brothers didn't get robes. And moreover, the robe like confirmed what the brothers had always suspected, that Joseph was the favorite son. In ancient times, scholars tell us that that would have meant that Joseph would likely have received a double portion of inheritance when the father passed. And that honor was almost always reserved for the firstborn son, unless the firstborn son wasn't the favorite son. So in giving Joseph the robe, his father essentially was communicating to the others, even though he's number 11, he's number one to me. And and I know what a bunch of you are thinking, especially if you have kids. Like, I'm sure Joseph's brothers didn't care about the robe, right? And the inheritance, not a big deal. Uh, Check out 
the next verse. <clears throat> when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. In other words, they couldn't stand him because of the disproportionate affection that their father had for him. And then things went from bad to worse one day when Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more, which of course raises the question, what was the dream? Well, one day Joseph comes to his brothers. He says, guys, guys, you got to gather around. This is really, really cool. I had this vivid dream. And in my dream, we were each sheaves of grain. Here's a picture. I had to Google it. Sheaves of grain. I know, really weird dream already. But anyway, Joseph says, in this dream, we're all sheaves of grain. My sheaf of grain raised up. And all of your sheaves of grain gathered around and bowed down to it. Yeah. It's almost like Joseph says to his brothers, guys, the coolest dream. Check this out. I became incredibly powerful, and all of you knelt in submission and reverence to me. Isn't that great? I mean, the coat and now this, right? So if I had been Joseph's therapist, I would have called him in and said, um, okay, <clears throat> life philosophy here. Having the dream, not a problem. You didn't choose to have the dream. Sharing the dream with your brothers, that's the problem. I mean, how did you think they were going to respond? Anyway, so notice it as Joseph's story begins, and this is, goes without saying, but the stage is set for some pretty intense relational conflict. And to be fair, some of it was Joseph's dad's fault because he played favorites, and some of it was Joseph's fault because he was kind of a tattletale who displayed a stunning lack of relational intelligence. But in any case, the account, as the account continues, we learn that one afternoon, Joseph's dad sent him back out into the fields to check on his brothers, and that on this particular day, his brothers had moved their flock miles away from home. He also tells us that as Joseph approached, his brothers recognized that they had, well, they had an opportunity to get rid of Joseph in a way his father would never know, could get rid of him once and for all. And so this is what the account tells. He says, so when Joseph came to his brothers, again, miles from home, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. Apparently he wears the robe, which is a whole other conversation, right? And they took him and threw him into the cistern, and the cistern was empty. So cisterns in ancient times, that's where you stored water, so it was a dry hole in the ground. Um, and then I love this next one. As they sat down to eat their meal... Right? Just imagine this moment. Joseph's brothers attack him, strip him of his special robe, throw him in a dry, dusty pit, and then sit down nearby to have lunch. It's a great story. Okay, check out what happens next. It says, as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. You know, as caravans of Ishmaelites do, right? It says, their camels were loaded with spices and balm and myrrh, uh, so they're traders, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. And then the account goes on to say that midway through his sandwich, one of Joseph's brothers experiences an unexpected moment of compassion. Relatively speaking, he said, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? He says, come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him after all. And this is great. He is our brother, right? <laughs> our own flesh and blood. And his brothers, they agreed. In other words, one of their brothers says, let's not kill him. Let's sell him. That way we get rid of him and we get paid. I mean, you know, you got to respect the entrepreneurial impulse there. Anyway, so the account continues. We learn, when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. And so now this sort of goes without saying, but um, 
in this moment, Joseph experienced a significant detour, right? I mean, just imagine what he must have been thinking. Like he's miles away from home, totally disoriented, covered in dirt, probably bruised, and confused. He, and, and he's thinking to himself, wait a minute, I'm the favorite son in the family through whom God had promised to bless the world. It wasn't supposed to be like this. This wasn't the plan. This wasn't my plan. I'm not where I want to be. And, and so what's really interesting at this point in the story, we need to pause and ask a couple of questions, beginning with what I would argue is the most important of all. It goes like this. Why would God allow this to happen to someone he loves? And this is a great question. In fact, I would argue that it's a question that all of us are tempted to ask when we find ourselves on a detour in life, when we're not where we want to be. And so Joseph is sitting in this cart bound for Egypt thinking, what in the world did I do to deserve this? And he's probably thinking, you know, I bragged about my dreams, but if this is the punishment, then it really doesn't fit the crime. And he's probably thinking, you know, if God loves me, and we later learn that God always loved Joseph, and if God had a plan for my life, and we learn that God had a plan for Joseph's life, see, then why did he allow something like this to happen to me? It just doesn't make sense. In fact, I was thinking about it this week. If I were Joseph, and again, I'm sitting with my wrists and ankles tied together in the back of a rickety cart bound for Egypt, I'd be asking the question, where is God like, and if he cares about me, then why did this happen? Why didn't he stop it? And why doesn't he stop it now? Because he certainly can. We'll just hold on to those questions in a moment. We'll come back to them. But, but, but what I want to do now is show you what happened next. Because the author of Genesis reported that Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, that's a guy's name, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials. So he was one of the leaders in the Egyptian government, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. So just imagine, again, the scene with me. Uh, the traders arrive in Egypt, and they go to the place where slaves are bought and sold, and they place Joseph up for sale. So maybe he's standing in a line with other potential candidates, and, and the buyers come in, and they examine him physically, try to determine how strong he is, you know, is he coordinated? And maybe they start asking him questions, like, does he speak Egyptian? They want to gauge his intelligence. And as it turned out, it just so happened that on this day, one of Egypt's top officials was in need of a slave and purchased Joseph and brought him to his home. And, and it's really interesting. It's at this point in the narrative where Joseph, from his perspective, his life has totally gone off the rails. At this point in the narrative, we reach a phrase that, if we're honest, doesn't seem to fit in the story. In fact, this was the phrase that sparked this whole series for me. This phrase reads like this. The Lord was with Joseph. So that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. You see what I mean? The phrase, the Lord was with Joseph, just doesn't seem to belong in the narrative, given what has transpired so far. I mean, as we think about it, if the Lord was with Joseph, then he should be back at home with his mom and his dad with his robe on, right? If the Lord is with Joseph, then good things should be happening to Joseph. I imagine Joseph thinking, you know, if he were, if he were aware of this in this moment, he'd be like, well, I'm not even sure I want God with me here when I'm in slavery. I don't want God with me here. I want God with me there, back home, mom and dad, favorite son, right? So I'm just going to ask you a question. 
Have you ever felt that way? Like, I don't want God with me here. I want God with me there. I don't want God with me on the detour. I want God to get me out of the detour. I know I have. I actually think it's natural for all of us to feel that way when we find ourselves on a detour. Said a bit differently, when things don't go according to our plans, it's natural to question God's care for us, to look up at the sky and kind of shake our fist and say, doesn't, doesn't he see me? Can't he hear me? Isn't he concerned about me? And if you get past those first three with unsatisfactory answers, you get to, does he even really love me? And, and, and let's be honest, these are fair questions. And, 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 you know, but, but here's the thing, and this is really something to think about. Joseph's story suggests something stunning, namely that God is at work in our lives, even in the midst of our detours. I would argue even maybe more so in the midst of our detours. That as counterintuitive as it may seem, even in the darkest, most confusing, most disorienting chapters in our lives, God is still at work and God is still telling a good story. I mean, just imagine with me a recent college grad that has to move back in with his parents. Like from his perspective, it wasn't supposed to be like this. This wasn't his plan. He was supposed to land a great job with a great company in a big city. Moving back home feels like a failure. And it most certainly feels like a detour. And so just imagine that he's carrying boxes down the stairs into the basement and his heart is heavy. And just imagine the power in that moment if he could recognize that his story isn't over yet. He's 22 years old. And that perhaps God is still telling a good story with his life. It's just a story with some really challenging chapters that he's going to have to live through. Or, or maybe imagine a 19-year-old girl who has to have a painfully awkward conversation with her mom and dad to inform them that she's pregnant and doesn't want anything to do with the baby's father. And as she's sitting on the couch waiting for mom and dad to come in, her heart is heavy because it wasn't supposed to be like this. This wasn't her plan. This wasn't their plan. This is a detour. But here's the thing, in that moment, just imagine what could happen inside of her if the thought just entered her mind that, listen, what if she realized and recognized that her story isn't over yet? Perhaps God is still telling a good story with her life. It's just a good story with some challenging chapters that she's going to have to navigate. But that she's not alone. She's never alone. That God is with her even as she sits on the couch and waits to have a conversation that she doesn't want to have. Or just imagine with me um, some parents who are struggling with a son who is like running away in every conceivable fashion. And just imagine with me that, um, you know, as a couple, their prayer life has been non-existent and all of a sudden it is flourishing because they sit at the table each night with a candle lit between them and just cry out to God to rescue their kid. And it wasn't supposed to be like this. This is a detour from the expected path. This wasn't their plan. But, but here's the thing. Even in that moment, just imagine if they could recognize that the story that God is telling with the life of their son isn't over yet. That perhaps he is still telling a good story. It's just a story, again, with some challenging 
chapters. I'm telling you, Joseph's story contains an implied invitation to all of us to trust that God is with us and at work in our lives, whatever our circumstances. Whatever our circumstances. Okay, so now, um, as the narrative of Joseph's life continues, we learn that time passes, and in spite of his situation, his challenging situation, Joseph continues to prosper. In fact, the author of Genesis described it this way. He says, uh, when his master, Potiphar, saw that the Lord was with him, there it is again, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Joseph got promoted. In fact, he says, Potiphar put him in charge of his household and entrusted to his care everything that he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar, and he's a smart guy here, left everything he had in Joseph's care. He says, with Joseph in charge, and I love this, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Life was good for Potiphar. He just had to be careful not to eat too much hummus. It's a good life. Yeah. Okay, so now that said, what I want to do is notice two things about the passage that we just read. One of them is stated implicitly. The other is implied. The first statement goes like this, and this will not surprise you. God was present with Joseph. God was blessing Joseph on his detour. And to be clear, God's presence and God's blessing did not manifest itself by getting Joseph out of his detour. In fact, Joseph eventually died in Egypt. And his final words were to ask his sons to take his body back home. But nonetheless, God was faithful to Joseph in his detour and through his detour. So that's the first thing I want to know. God was present with Joseph on his detour. The second thing that's implied, and this is so powerful, look at this. Joseph was present in his detour. In other words, Joseph didn't sit around pouting with his arms folded. He applied himself. He did what he could. He kept moving forward, and he didn't have to. In fact, I would argue that during a detour in life, there is a real temptation for all of us to zone out, to numb out, to check out. Plus, let's be honest, when we're somewhere we don't want to be, locking in and moving forward isn't easy. But see, that's what Joseph did. In fact, Joseph's whole situation reminds me, and this will surprise you, but it reminds me of one of those cheesy refrigerator magnets that you can buy at Northern Michigan Small Town Craft Shows. Who's with me? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I had to go to one this summer. My counselor says I'm finally getting over it, but it was a traumatic experience. Uh, you know, it's one of those like booths with all the little arts and crafts in it next to the overpriced elephant ears. You with me on this? Some of you are like, I've never, I have no idea. You're blessed. Okay, but anyway, walking through the fair and there's a magnet that grabs my attention, partly because it's so cheesy, but it came right back to me when I was studying Joseph. And the magnet said this, bloom where you're planted. See, I wish I had taken a picture of it, but I didn't. Right, bloom and if you're watching and you made those magnets, you got me. Okay. Yeah, bloom where you're planted. And as much as I hate to admit it, this is really good advice. It really is. If you think about it, sometimes our only option is to bloom where we're planted because that's where we are and we don't have the ability to change our situation. I mean, I don't like this. I really don't. But at some point in all of our lives, we will find ourselves in the midst of an unexpected and an unwelcomed 
life situation, like a detour that we didn't choose and we wouldn't choose. And God will seem silent and our prayers will seem to bounce off the ceiling and we'll be tempted to give up hope and we'll be asking ourselves, how in the world are we going to get through this season? But I'm telling you, the surprising answer to that question every single time is simply to do what Joseph did. We need to keep our head up. We need to keep moving forward. And we need to do what we would do if we were confident that God was with us because he is. He always is, even when it doesn't feel like it. He's with you on your marriage detour, and he's with you on your teenager-induced detour. That's a clinical diagnosis, right? And he's with you on your vocational detour, and he's with you on your financial detour. He's with you. You are never alone because he loves you, and he is going to be at work in your life with every single day that he gives you. And so my encouragement to you, especially if you find yourself on a detour right now, is to stay present, to stay engaged, to stay connected to people who love you and care about you, and to stay hopeful. Choose to believe that God is telling a good story with your life, and it's just a story with some really, really challenging chapters. Before, um, before I let you go, I wanted us to listen to a song together. Um, and it's a song that, that captures the essence of Joseph's story. Um, it's a beautiful song. It's a simple song. It's called Hold On To Me. And it's a prayer written from the perspective of someone on a challenging detour in life, a prayer that just asks God to meet them in that space and to remind them that he's still loves them, and he is still at work in their life. So let's listen to the song together, and then I'll return to close our time. When the best of me barely breathing When I'm not somebody I believe in Hold on to me when I miss the light, the night is stolen. When I'm slamming all the doors you've opened, hold on to me. Hold on to me.
Cause I know nobody loves me better Hold on to me came into this place um, looking for hope, I, I, I really pray that you found it at least a little bit. And um, if that's where you find yourself this morning, we'd love to meet you under the screen to the left and just offer a prayer for you. But for the rest of us, why don't you stand and I'll close our time. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you and we thank you that we are never alone pray that we would continue to sense your presence with us as we navigate a life that is often uncertain and often does not follow our plans. We open ourselves up to your plan and the fact that you use detours to redirect us. I pray that we would not fight you and that we would just surrender to your will for our lives. And in so doing, I pray that we would find peace and we would find hope in spite of our circumstances. I pray for friends who this morning find themselves where they do not want to be. Please meet them, encourage them, and remind them that you love them more than they can possibly imagine. We gather as a community because 2,000 years ago, you demonstrated your love for every single person by sending your one and only son to offer us a way to peace with you. And so we thank you and we bless you in the matchless name of your son, our Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It is in his name, everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week.